Well, I'm hoping to show us in this text where we see the great power of God, but also his incredible promise to us, and finally his provision, his love, and his presence, that we are not in vain saying those precious words, thanks be to God. But Exodus 19 puts us, as it were, in our place before the power and the holiness of God at the mountain, empty-handed, in need of the Lord's help. Reminds me of the story I came across this last week, story of a DEA agent, DEA agent, who stopped by a ranch in Texas to talk to an old rancher. Some of you guys know some old ranchers. They will crush your hand if you shake their hand. They know what they're doing. And the DE agent said, I need to expect your ranch. Some townie has reported the possibility of illegally grown drugs. The rancher said, okay, you can do whatever you want, but don't go into that field over there. And he pointed to a specific location. As he did, the DE agent verbally exploded and said, look here, mister. I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his rear back pocket, the arrogant officer removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. See this badge? This badge means I can go wherever I want, on your land, on any land. No questions asked, no answers given. You understand that, old man? Ooh. The rancher kindly nodded, apologized briefly, and then went about his day's many chores. Just moments later, the rancher heard loud screams. He looked up and saw the DE agent running for his life, being chased by the rancher's prize, oversized Santa Gertrudis bull. <laughs> With every step, the bull was gaining ground on the young officer, and it was likely that he was sure enough to get gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified, calling out for help. The old rancher threw down his tools, ran as fast as he could to the edge of the fence, and yelled out at the top of his lungs, your badge! Show him your badge! <laughs> and this ties right into Exodus 19, because that's just, that's just how we come to God so often. And he's the old wide ranch, wise rancher in the story, and he's the power and might of the bull. And we show up like, like a young agent, you know, with an official title and a badge. And Exodus 19 reminds us that we need a bigger view of God. We need a bigger view of the wisdom and the power of God so that we might have a right view of ourselves, so that we might remain safe from the things in the world that would seek to destroy us and in his arms, his love, his mercy, and his care. In Exodus 19, we see that God comes in power. It's just hard to imagine, isn't it, that, you know, if, if the mountains at the Sangres over here were just smoke and fire and lightning and power and a voice coming forth and Moses the mediator going up and down but try to put yourself in their situation it's been two and a half months since they've left Egypt they've been tired they've been hungry God has been merciful about their grumbling and their whining he's provided and here they are here they are at the foot of the mountain and God shows up full power full authority 
So none of their works or gifts or, or badges mean anything at the moment of the mountain. And I think like these Israelites, we, we often have a little bit of an authority problem ourselves, don't we? We want to make our own way. We want to be the masters and commanders of our own ships. We want to make our own covenant promises and give God our terms in our time. I read the story this week, and some of you might have seen it, that the Harvard University has hired a new chaplain, a new chaplain of chaplains, and, and this guy happens to be the, uh, the secular humanist chaplain. He's actually a Jewish humanist. His name is Greg Epstein, a tough name to have these days. I'm like, come on, Greg. Oh, Greg. What are you doing, buddy? You're going to be the hope to the kiddos, you know? Uh, your, your life has no purpose. You're a complex flesh computer. Good luck. Hope you get A's. Welcome to Harvard. And you can only imagine the Puritans who founded the school on the Word of God turning over in their graves. And yet I think it, it illuminates to us just that fact, that not only do we want to in our heart of hearts be our own gods, but now we have authority over us that's, that's basically fanning that fire. So I looked into this guy a little bit, and he's a part of the Jewish Secular Humanist Society. I'd never heard of that. But I went to one of their web pages. They have about 30 chapters around the country. Not a large group. But their statement of faith is chilling and telling. Basically this. Uh, we are secular humanist Jews. We love the Jewish culture. We love the food. We love the rituals. But we don't need God. We just don't need God. We don't need there to be an actual God with actual power who comes down to actual mountains who has actually any sort of moral authority in our lives. And as easy as it is for me to tell the story about, you know, old Greg Epstein, this is us. This is me. This is you. This is in our hearts. We, we too have an anemic view of God. And that's why Exodus 19 is such a big and important chapter. It's a linchpin in the story of Exodus, 40 chapters long. God has been with his people. He's been walking with them. He's delivered them. He's rescued them. But now he wants to dwell with them. This has always been God's plan. And this is a bit of a tightrope to walk this morning, but, but I want to try to walk it together because, I mean, look, be good Bereans. If I'm making this up, if I'm twisting God's word, come and tell me, tell the elders, we'll deal with it immediately. But I think this is really the tension that's in the text. That the God who delivered and rescued, the God of power, the God who creates the universe by the power of his word, he wants to dwell with his people, but he's holy. And so there's a challenge here. There's an issue here. And yet God doesn't abandon them, which is what we might have done. We might have shown up to the mountain and looked down upon these Israelites and gone, really? These grumblers and bumblers? This ragtag group of Semites wandering across the desert? Instead, God's deliverance gives way to his dwelling. The revealing of his power also reveals his desire to be in relationship with them. And so one scholar refers to Exodus 19, this transition point, as the climax of redemption. The Lord has saved them from death and the Egyptians, and now he's, he's telling his people, this is how we need to live together. This is what it looks like for us to be in relationship. And oh, by the way, that is how you are going to have 
fullness of joy in your life. Not an easy life, not a life without challenges and suffering and maybe even some persecution, but joy and foundation and promises that are unshakable. He reveals his power and he enters into a relationship with them. And the question now for us is, but how? How's that going to work? And what will it look like? And as we read at our call to worship in Psalm 24, who, who can stand before the Lord? Who can approach his holy hill? Who can go up this mountain? Only he with clean hands and a pure heart? Well, don't actually do that, but you know, raise your hand if that's you. Raise your hand if you're the one who goes, yeah, you know, my last week, my last month, my last year, so spotless. You should see me, Greg. In my marriage, killing it. All my relationships, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-great-great-great-grandkids, amazing. Work, no problem. Anything my wife asked me to do, got it. Yard work, never thinking a lustful thought, never looking at something I should look at, never lingering on a picture, never having too much to drink, never looking at my money too much. Nope. Clean hands, pure heart. Who can stand before the hill of the Lord? And so Exodus 19 is going to show us three things about what it looks like for God's power to be revealed in his promise so that we can experience his presence. The first, and I'm just going to go over them, is that it's a power beyond our control. The second is that it's a promise beyond our conjuring. And the third is that God is a provider beyond our imagination. Power, promise, and provision. The delivering God makes a way for his people to dwell with him. The first thing we see in our text, and it, it, it should startle us and stand out to us, that God's presence at Sinai is a reminder that he is, I am, and we are, I am not. Now guys, th- this isn't God's way of, of shaming you, of of wagging the finger, of, of heaping on religious rules and traditions, and oh man, I came to church today and now I'm not feeling so great about that decision. It's actually when we stand properly before God and His power and His might and His holiness that we can experience the fullness not only of His love, but the wholeness of our own lives. So God shows us here that He's holy. God is power. Not just that God has power, or that God uses power when he wants to, but that he is power. He's fire, he's smoke. The mountain is trembling, the people are trembling, and there's no, there's no natural explanation for this, okay? There's no way to get around it and, you know, trace back the fossil record and do some geological deal, and oh, there was an earthquake, you know, 2,500 years ago. No. He's either God or he's not. And he's either the God of power and fire and smoke, he's either a God that's holy and helpful, or what are we doing here? What are we doing here on a Sunday morning in Santa Fe when it's such a beautiful day? And you could be out having avocado toast on Canyon Road or taking a hike, you know, to experience God with your crystals in the mountains. Why do you need to be here? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm so glad you're here. And I love being here. And I think there's, man, isn't it good to be with God's people? Especially in this time of loneliness and and, and distance. It's just good to be together, to sing together. Those are good things. But but this is what we're confronted with in our our passage. Because even though those are good things, I don't think they're, they're good enough to make a claim or a demand upon your life. 
to say to you, live this way and you will truly live. And do you want to know what it means to truly live, to love God, to love your neighbors, to be made whole, to be healed from trauma and pain, to be restored in grace and mercy? God is revealed in power. And the power is scary, actually. It's scary because, you know, we, we come to church on Sundays and our tradition, along with many others, has kind of an opening prayer, a prayer of intention, a prayer of kind of setting us right. Here's what we're here to do. Called to worship, we're here to meet with God. The question is, but what God? And that's why our, our services, our, our liturgy, the, the sort of reenacting the exodus that we do every Sunday in church should sometimes startle us. Now, don't get me wrong. There are, there are many of you who are here. You, you need to be here to heal, to rest, and this should be a place of rest. This should be a place of, oh, man, awesome. God is good. I am known. I am loved. He is with me. There should be comfort for the afflicted. But what Exodus 19 reminds us of is that we can't control God. We cannot tame him. We can't domesticate him. We don't get to make him in our own image. He's not a genie in a lamp that you just rub when, you know, things are bad. And if he doesn't come out in your way and in your time, you're justified in being upset with him. No, because the reason we're here before the mountain and the power and the smoke and the fire of God is also so that... The comfortable, those who are too comfortable in our, in our own righteousness, in our own way and works, might be afflicted, might be brought to our knees in need so that all of those needs can be met for you and me in Jesus. And that's why the people tremble, because they are revealed by God's power. They are convicted. And you know, as I was praying about this sermon this week, I'm always kind of praying through this, like, you know, how much do I say? I'm a bit of a talker, if we've ever met. I do a little bit of the overshare sometimes. Forgive me if you've been a victim of that. You know, and, and God's word is objective. It's not for me to tell my, you know, this isn't a place for me to do my own personal therapy session every week. But as, as I prayed about this, I just thought, man, I am, I am so rarely very terrified of my own sin. There's just so much stuff in, in my life and in your life that, that I abide Ways that I cope, ways of looking for control, often being critical, often not turning away from things I should turn away from more quickly, or turning toward the things I should turn toward more quickly. It's like Paul in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And the things I want to do, man, do I struggle to actually do those things with you know, any modicum of ongoing success. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? We are revealed in the power of God, the fire and the smoke, that again, we want the covenant on our terms. And I think we've, we've seen this, haven't we, in the last year and a half? And I want to be very careful here, because I, again, I struggle with this this week. I don't want to sound like angry pastor guy. Oh, great, here comes angry pastor. You know, buckle up, he'll get to grace in a minute. And if you've ever had an angry pastor preach at you, you know, have a little bit of compassion. I, I heard a guy say one time, a, a lot of times the way that people preach is the way that they talk to themselves when they're alone. Sometimes you might get a, 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 you know, an angry pastor and really that's about what's going on in his heart. 
maybe he hasn't experienced the grace of God fully. And so I don't want to do that, but I want to challenge us because I think if we stand before the mountain and the power and the glory and the fire, it's okay for us to be challenged as Israel was. Or else what are we doing except for reading some nice little, you know, history lesson? You know, this last year, when God calls his people and his power and authority to worship, he says, make it a priority. Come and worship me. Be with me. Stand before my mountain. Be with Jesus. And I feel like this last year, and I see this in myself, you know, it's like, well, I'll go if I want to. I'll go if I like it. I'll go, you know, who's preaching that Sunday? How long is the sermon going to be? How long is the service going to be? What songs are they going to do? We got vaccines or no? Masks or no? You going to mention my political thing or no? I feel like so often our preferences betray us and me. We have no idea the God that we are standing before here. And we are so slow to in any way be terrified by our own sin because we've turned those things into ways that we think we can be happy and cope with life. But if God is real and if the Bible is true, we don't get to make the terms of the promise. We don't get to make God in our own image. We get to come like Israel to the foot of the mountain and say, Lord, all we have here is our need of you to do something. You took us out of Egypt two and a half months ago and we sort of knew where the promised land was and now we are farther from the promised land than we were when we started. Sinai is farther away. Lord, all we have is that we need you to show up and help and work. And we are praying that you're the kind of God who's gonna use that kind of power to help. Well, the good news of our text is that's exactly what the Lord does. And in the first six verses, we get this outline of what it looks like when God enters into, his, into a relationship with his children through promise. It's not enough to say you're not an accident. It's more than that. We have to think beautifully and theologically and biblically about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. God did not create you because he was bored. He didn't create you out of a sense of obligation or duty. It's not like the ending of the first movie of Men in Black, which I know you all watched last night, so great illustration, where it zooms out and all of a sudden it shows aliens playing with marbles and those marbles are the universes. This isn't some glorified version of SimCity where God is just a divine computer mind that kind of wants to play around with you and see what happens. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect, reciprocal, inter-Trinitarian love were so glorious in their love that they could not help but create. And they created images of themselves, beings, humans in their own image. You see, the promise of God, I mean, we would never make this up. That the God who is that powerful, breath in your lungs right now, take a deep breath just for a second and remember that every atom, quark, molecule, and the rest moves here and there because God has declared it to be so. And this is the God who uses his power to make promises with his people, to bring them into relationship. Here's another way to put it. The I am makes the I am nots into they are minds. The I am makes the I am nots into they are minds. It's by grace. We see this at the mountain. The Old Testament, by the way, is a story about mountains. There's a bunch of mountains in the Old Testament. 
probably the most famous mountain in Genesis, or one of the most famous, a wicked mountain. You might remember it, it was a, a mountain that a guy named Nimrod built. There's a reason that in Egypt, the pyramids look like mountains. Mountains were often temples, and temples were often constructed to be like mountains, places where heaven and earth meet. Well, in Genesis, Nimrod decides to build his own mountain temple. He decides to do it his own way, to demonstrate his own glory, and then he makes it impossible to get up the mountain unless you are, as he claims to be, the divine king, or you work really, really hard to get there. That's the promise of the world. Again, should we work hard? Yes. Should we, do we want to grow? Of course. If you're still, you know, working, like in a job, but, you know, by the grace of God, do the best you can. If you're retired, and I hear from some retired people that there's still a lot of work to do. Well, then, you know, use your time and your gifts and your efforts for the glory of God. And I'm not saying we just sit back on the couch and eat, eat chips. But what I'm saying is that the principle of the world, this law principle, is that man goes around building his own towers. There's only a few people at the top. And the only way to get there is to work really hard to get there, if you can even get there at all. We see that it's by grace, this relationship that God is bringing his people into, this covenant, this promise. Because on this mountain, God doesn't demand that they come up. God comes down. God doesn't demand that they work harder do better, try more. The God of power and fire and smoke condescends. And that's why he says in verse four, I carried you on eagle's wings. Look, we're gonna make this covenant, this promise. It's gonna be a contract. You're promise breakers, I'm a promise keeper. So buckle up. I'm gonna be the one to keep the promise. But as I'm doing that, let's not forget where you were. I basically gathered all of you, put you onto a huge bird and flew you out of Egypt. That's the picture that God's giving his people. I flew you, I transported you, and I did it so that you would know there was no other way. So that you could take no credit. So that you would know that it was me. So that as I now lay out for you that the terms of this covenant, of this promise, you never move away from grace. Because again, it is grace all the way down. God brings his people into a covenant which in the old days of the ancient Near East was a very specific legal and binding way to make a contract or a promise. All the aspects of it are found here. The preamble, the historical prologue, you were in Egypt, I brought you out. The stipulations, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And then the ratification. If you do these things, you'll live. And if you don't do them, you'll die. It was common in the ancient Near East for a suzerain king to make these sort of promises with needy vassals that's a whole lot of words, and unless you are a Hebrew nerd, you better be wondering, why are you telling me that? Why did you just tell me about historical prologues? Avocado toast, sounding good. No. Now, this is important, because these, these contracts were binding. They were bound in blood. Indeed, they were often bound in the blood of the Lamb. They couldn't be broken. If any party would break the contract, they would be torn apart, torn asunder, just like the sacrifice that had been made. And here's why all of that is important, that God didn't just come down and say, well, you guys are looking pretty good today. Glad I showed up at the mountain in fire and smoke, and you're obviously a little bit, you know, freaked out, so you feeling it? 
We're feeling it. Are you? I said, are you feeling it, Israel? We're feeling it, God. Okay? That would have been one way to do it. And then 48 minutes later, when they weren't feeling it, everything would have fallen apart. And God would have had, you know, maybe not a flood this time, but maybe this time fire. Just go full Noah on all of you people and start again. No, instead, these covenants aren't based on our experience. Because, man, you've had those moments where you're like, I'm so close to the Lord, or I just, I prayed this thing or read this thing or someone said this thing, and I just know. And it feels close and near. And then you know what? You've had a lot of moments. You've had a lot of moments where you're like, Lord, are you there? Are you, maybe you look at what's going on in the world. You know, maybe you've been following Afghanistan the last couple weeks. Maybe you've been following what's going on in our country. Maybe you've been following just what's going on in your own heart. Lord, are you there? Or do you care? Are you going to, like, you going to do anything? Our feelings change. Our perceptions of ourselves change. And what's worst and saddest is that our trust in God seems to wax and wane. But this promise is made on vows. It's like a marriage. That's why when two people get married, we don't say, all right, do you guys standing here really, really like each other right now? All right, cool, you're good. That's all you need for a happy marriage. Just like each other right now in this moment. Everybody had a mint, you got good breath. Nobody spilled toothpaste in the bathroom. There's no clothes on the floor. There's no fights. There's no frustration. There's no family of origin issues yet. You're good. No, vows, it's solid. And the second piece of this covenant that's so important and again, why we, you know, talk about the structure of it is that it's God who initiates it. So if, if the promise is as solid as a marriage, see, God then is the glorious bridegroom who initiates and sustains the promises. This isn't God saying, you know what? I will set my love upon you when you are pleasing to me. When you do what I want you to do in the way I want you to do it, I'll set my love upon you. That's not the words and actions of a good husband. No, the covenant shows us that God sets his love not on the lovely, but God by his grace sets his love upon the unlovely. And that's why the Lord says, as we do this promise together, you guys, you are gonna be my treasured possession. That's a really specific Hebrew word right there. It's often used to describe the private personal wealth of the king. Not the communal wealth of the common good, but the private personal wealth of the king. That's what God is saying about us in the making of this covenant. Look, we're going to be in relationship. You're going to need a mediator. You're going to need help. It's going to be by grace. By grace, I, I want you to grow and act and trust me and love me. But at the end of the day, you are my treasured possession. If I brought you out on a huge bird, guess what? I'm going to keep you close to my heart. So Martin Luther puts it this way. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep again, he has no intention of pushing it away. No intention of pushing it away in anger once more or throwing it to the hungry wolf. No, all his care and concern is directed toward alluring it with every possible kindness. This is the nature of the covenant promise. An ongoing pursuit of the bridegroom for you, his bride. The allure of the promise treating it with the utmost tenderness, he takes the lamb upon his own back, lifting it up and carrying it until he brings the animal all the way home again. 
So when God shows up in power and fire and smoke and glory, and we have proper fear, that is reverence and respect for his awesomeness, his response to us isn't, good, you bow down and worship me, peons, now be my slaves. His response is to enter into a relationship with us by a promise that he alone can and will keep. And the good news for Israel is that this is all by faith. I want you to notice that they're all standing. They're all are welcome. So I look around this room. We've got younger folks. We've got, you know, some older folks. We've got men. We've got women. We've got kiddos. We've got those who are doing really well. We've got those who are struggling. We've got those who are, you know, fitness experts and gurus. We have then me and my friends. All are welcome. Because what qualifies the Israelites to enter into this covenant isn't their past action, their present excitement and experience, or their, or their future obedience. What qualifies them is that they're trusting the one who makes the promise to keep it. And this is a beautiful way of understanding faith. That if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I haven't been in church forever. I have all kinds of questions and doubts, Pastor Greg, if you even knew. Well, try me. Let's go. Let's hang out. You know, I've got a bunch of stuff I'm struggling with. My faith is small as a mustard seed. Or maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, what is this guy talking about? Why does he keep going on about the challenges of faith? I just kind of trust Jesus that I'm okay. It is not the size of your faith that connects you to all the fullness of the promises and the benefits that we have in Christ. It's the nature of your faith in the object who's already finished the work for you. Here's how I want to illustrate this, cell phones. Some of you guys, everybody has a friend that has like the newest, coolest phone on the block, right? It's one of those new Samsung ones. I mean, they're so big now, it's basically like an iPad up to your ear, right? They're like this big, you know, you need to have a backpack with it just to charge the darn thing. And then everybody has that one cool hipster rebellious friend at the coffee shop who's like, ooh, nice, you know, tablet phone. Check out my clam shell phone. You know, I'm so cool that it's, you know, 1985 again. Look at me. And whether you have the super nice phone that costs, you know, $10,000 and is gold-plated and, you know, can brush your teeth and make, you know, julienne fries, or you have the clamshell phone that literally does nothing but make the call with the big buttons. Here's the beauty of it. Both of those instruments, both of those devices are sufficient to make the call. They are both enough to fully deliver on the promises of what a phone is, which is that the call gets through. And so it is with the faith of the Israelites. That's why all are welcome. That's why this bringing into relationship isn't just for the elite few who really haven't really got it together and have been extra religious. You know, the ones who haven't complained on the two and a half month journey, but are really frustrated with the ones that have. Because even the smallest faith, weak and wounded and broken faith, is enough to deliver the call. This then, God's people before the mountain, God condescending in grace, bringing them into a relationship with the covenant through a mediator Moses, by faith, this is what makes a kingdom of priests set apart a holy nation. This is what it's going to look like when the Israelites are, are living before the face of God and, and the garden is on display, creation reborn. But the story doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't. And that's why beholding God's power, 
believing God's promise. They really need God's provider. I mean, you can almost feel that this text leaves us with such great awe and anticipation. Is this it? Is this the kingdom breaking in? Is this the promise from Genesis 3.16 where wood would come to crush the head of the serpent? There's gonna be a whole nation of priests, a holy nation of king priests who rule. This is the language of Genesis 1 in the garden before the fall. And yet two words shake us out of our presumptions. But humans... And so like we all do in the moment, they respond way too hard. We will do everything the Lord has said. We almost chuckle when we hear it read. They are feeling it. They are excited. God is good. He's there. We're here. We're hearing him. It's all real. God, we're going to do everything you've asked us to do. Spoiler alert. They don't. Spoiler alert, it's not even 10 chapters away that we get to Exodus 32 and they are melting down the gold, the plunder from Egypt that the Lord gave them to bring to the promised land to make a golden calf so that they can worship a God they can control and understand in a place they can see it. Hope seems to be in short supply for these people and so often for us. And when we come out, you know, having been confronted by the bull, holding up our badge, I think you've lived enough life to know that's not enough to save. So who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And it's here, of course, that we're brought back finally and forever once again to Jesus. Let us never think that the Bible is somehow broken into two parts. You know, the mountain fire smoke guy in the Old Testament, and then, you know, Jesus with blonde hair and a hair straightener that pets babies and kisses lambs in the New Testament. That's not the case at all. Both Testaments testify to the one who will come to save. So we see that Jesus alone can do it. He is the true Israelite. He is the true mountain of God. And in fact, all the fire and smoke of the mountain of God come down on Jesus. He is the one who is crushed. He is the one who stands under the holiness and the judgment of God so that if we stand under Christ, we are not judged. He is the true mediator. He is the true covenant keeper and he himself is the terms of the covenant. Indeed, he's the pure and spotless lamb who is torn in two so that we might walk through without judgment. This is not the church answer, you guys. You know, what's the answer? It's Jesus. No, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you must see that everything is pointing toward it being fulfilled in the finished work of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is now uniting us to that finished work. So on our best day and our worst day, if we stand before the mountain, we are hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed your power to us, and it is a little scary to be exposed. Oh, but I'm so thankful that you you don't expose us to shame us or wag your finger, guilt us. You certainly don't expose us to say, work harder, climb the hill, make your way up the mountain, figure it out. Lord, in our being exposed, we see our need. And in seeing our need, we realize that all we need is need. And knowing that all we need is need, we see the beauty of the fact that you have met that need for us by your power through a promise in the provider of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are the I am.
and that you make us in our I am nots into they are minds. Thank you that you have set your love upon us and may we know that. May we taste and see that it is good as we come now to feast on those promises at your table. Amen.